I, I don't think it's about necessarily a like an individual or person. You know, it c- it could be a person, it could be a group, it could be a town. I guess. Uh, I don't know. I th- I think here it's, you know, they say in Butte like there's this never say die spirit, which I really love that phrase. Uh, I plan on using it a lot. Um, maybe that's it though. Is that, you know, there are hardships everywhere. And it's like an unwillingness to give up. And as I said, I'm less interested in like the underdog somehow, you know, surprising everyone and beating the odds and like coming through and winning. It's more just what does it look like to keep trying and keep struggling maybe forever? And well, what are the qualities that um, contribute to someone or some town's ability to do that? This is season one of the Free Flow podcast, a media project of Free Flow Institute. I'm Chandra Brown, founder and director of Free Flow Institute. Welcome to the Free Flow Podcast, a show that takes today's best storytellers outside and into their favorite wild places for conversations about craft, conservation, and the creative life. On today's episode, our guest is audio journalist Nora Sachs, reporter for Montana Public Radio and host of the podcast The Richest Hill from Montana Public Radio, which the New Yorker magazine highlighted as one of the best podcasts of 2019 and which won the 2020 Daniel Shore Journalism Prize. You'll hear excerpts from Richest Hill on the show today. Producer Rick White talked with Nora on a hot midsummer, mid-pandemic Sunday morning in August of 2020 in the heart of Butte, Montana. So maybe it would help, it would help me actually to just uh, tell you what this is. Is that okay? So this is the Silver Bow, the Upper Silver Bow Creek Channel, and you know before mining, what I understand is that this area would have been like braided wetlands and not necessarily one, you know, sinuous stream, but just a lot of wetland ecosystem here. Um, and then Blacktail Creek is right over there, and that's a headwater stream too. And you know they would have met and then flowed where Silver Bow Creek gets bigger, and then onto the Clark Fork. But around the 1920s or 30s, um, well, Silver Bow Creek had already been used as like an industrial sewer and a municipal sewer, and they needed to get all this stuff out of town faster. And so through the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, they, um, this was one of the work projects, and they kind of really made this industrial channel. And the problem is that there's a lot of mine tailings that are still like buried from where we're standing up a ways. Um, this isn't connected to them. This is just stormwater uh, and back up from Blacktail Creek, which comes in right there. So that's why it's not moving. Um, so that's what we're looking at. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like if I if I were a duck and I try to think like a duck frequently. If I were a duck, I would have wanted to be here formerly. You know, there's yeah. cattails and wetlands, uh, kind of kind of marshy area, but it does not look like there are many ducks here right now no and it's like really clouded with algae and plants and stuff mm-hmm. but yeah if we we can walk along that trail sure. and this is the creek corridor and then 
we'll see some of these like fields and tailing spots and then this is where most of the coming Superfund work is going to be happening. Gotcha. I'm Nora Sachs. This is Richest Hill, a podcast about one of America's most notorious Superfund sites. Technically, Butte is the epicenter of one of the biggest complex of Superfund sites in the entire country. Superfund is the federal program to clean up the nation's worst abandoned, contaminated waste sites. And this one stretches 120 miles, snaking down an entire river corridor in western Montana. The cleanup has been dragging on since the 1980s. So I grew up in the in Rockville, which is the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and it's like cookie-cutter suburbs. And actually, now that we're looking at this drainage ditch, it reminds me that like my first real environmental activist move was to try to clean up a creek in our neighborhood, which actually was a sewer drain, and the neighbor was dumping uh, grass clippings in it and like clogging the whole thing. But it was the only place my friends and I could go to see, you know, like tadpoles and minnows and stuff. And so I think I was in middle school and I we held signs, <laughs> we had a protest. So anyways, I think, you know, growing up where I did, I don't know if you're familiar with that part of the country, but it feels to me like it really lacks like a sense of place or at least I didn't feel any because the suburbs are everywhere and they look the same and my parents and family ended up there for work not because like our family goes back generations in Maryland you know and so yeah I got really interested in um, activism and community organizing in high school around like smart growth and urban sprawl and saving the last of the old growth forests because it felt like we have to do something to stop the spread of suburbia and people, you know? Um, you know, I, I always like liked writing or was good at it or something and, you know, worked on a magazine in college and my parents were both journalists and I just, being a writer was so scary and like, so unappealing in some level and on the other hand also like the dream you know and so after my dad died it kind of caused me to reevaluate a lot of choices I had made and like how I was spending my time and I realized it was really fear that was probably keeping me from trying something more creative and that was kind of a big realization and that got you to, to salt right yeah and yeah it did get me to salt um a lot of four-wheelers going by <laughs> and uh and so then I was already living in Portland and so I was like well this is kind of a a couple steps on the diving board you know like I could do this semester-long program in documentary studies and they had creative nonfiction track and uh it seemed like a really good community and so I thought you know I'll just try this and see how it goes and that that, that semester was really pivotal I guess so how so because I finally got kind of a pass or a green light to spend all my time thinking about storytelling, uh, writing, multimedia, and like, yeah, just a passport basically to go to anyone in Maine and say, you know, I'm a documentary student and I'm interested in what you're doing and why can I spend some time with you? And I'd never had that before. Uh, but once I did, uh, yeah, I just, I know it was hard, but I also loved it. 
and it just like let my curiosity you know run wild up to <laughs> down east maine and some folks who were uh trying to bring back some of the wild atlantic salmon population and it's something that i would have nerded out you know in my free time over maybe but i didn't have a lot of that and so then like hopping in the car and driving up the coast and bringing gear and like spending time with these people and trying to learn what they were doing and why and like what drove them and what kept them up at night you know I, I it was a long time ago still but I, I do remember this feeling of like oh like this is what I'm supposed to be doing you know but the the writing teacher just like didn't get what I was trying to do and I was like I'm gonna go spend time with these like Atlantic salmon nerds who are gonna raise spawn and put them in the river and try to you know rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic and she was just like what like what it's not quirky and you know for I don't know I guess at that point I couldn't really explain why I felt like what they were doing was so symbolic or important um, but it made sense to me and I did it anyway and I know that like that piece was not a success in their eyes but actually it's pretty similar to what I'm doing now <laughs> and I, I don't know maybe it's also just like believing in your own instinct and also finding people who get it also what what succeeded in your eyes about that piece Ooh, tough one <laughs> yeah I don't I wouldn't say it was like the writing quality or the style or the voice or anything so I, I, I didn't know what I was doing on those fronts I mean I don't know if you're, you're gonna get to this question but I think something you brought up was my affection for underdogs yeah, and I, I maybe wouldn't have put it that way at the time, but there was something so like honest about their struggle and, you know, this community that had really, the salmon used to flourish there, as did all sorts of other commercial fisheries, and most people had given up on them, you know, and um, just said the salmon aren't coming back. But for some reason, this small group of people like wouldn't, accept that answer and we're trying really creative ways to get around that or keep the population afloat or like not let it completely disappear and so yeah I guess it's just their struggle and it, it was less about the outcome and whether they were successful in what they were trying to do than these reasons they were doing it and I think that came across or at least I think I understood that by the time I was done reporting that story and I'd love to do a follow-up to see what happened but I think that is perhaps the tie that binds like what I was doing then in my very first foray into creative nonfiction, and now which is journalism you know which is just like, why do we do the things we do especially when all the cards are stacked against us and I, I, that's like endlessly fascinating to me. I think that's going to get us closer to Butte. <laughs> yeah it might be. Is that a bench up there? It looks like a rock, maybe? It's going to be something to sit on, I think. But you see now the channel's empty? Yeah. Yeah. Very quickly. We've gotten, we've gone to a dry channel. Yeah. And it's late in the summer. I don't know. Do you, does it, does it change seasonally? Sure. When it's, when there's more storms earlier on in the summer, there's, it, it catches the storm water. That's the whole purpose of it now. Gotcha. And it still will do that. But if you can imagine on either side of us where these fields are, there's going to be like pools of water wetlands, trails, playgrounds, boardwalks, um, and it's all also going to be to capture and treat stormwater, but it's going to be a really big park. 
According to fourth-generation Butte miner and history buff Pat Kinnean, these headwaters have long been the stuff of legend. But instead of a single meandering thread, it was more like swampy, braided wetlands. I guess to back up even before European settlers came to Summit Valley, um, the Salish Kootenai people called this area Sintopke, and it means the place where you shoot them in the head. And they were referring to the native trout that existed in the stream. It said that the fish were so big, the native people could harvest them with bows and arrows, that there were so many, they could walk across the water on their backs. But that's not exactly how Pat remembers it. When he was a kid, he and his buddies used to take a shortcut home after baseball games and hop on a pipeline over the creek. And when you, your buddy would get out there on the pipe, you'd start throwing rocks at him, trying to knock him off. <laughs> so, <laughs> so eventually, you know, we all got knocked off the pipe and you'd end up in the creek. And about two days later, your shoelaces are gone. And about a week later, your shoes are gone because you fell in the creek. And it was full of acidic mine water. That was in the 1970s when Silverbow Creek flowed down where the steep Butte Hill meets the flat valley below. And Pat says back then, it was better known by a rather unfortunate nickname. <laughs> You're going to make me say it, aren't you, Nora? Well, yeah, I mean, we called it Shit Creek. That's because in addition to all that scary mine water, for a long time, the little creek was also flowing with stinky, raw municipal sewage. Nothing grew on its banks. No fish swam. So there was absolutely, I mean, there was no life in that stream. It's still dead. It's just that nowadays, instead of kids being warned to stay away from the creek or dared to go near it, most people don't even know it's there. I sure didn't. Every time I went searching for this historic creek that was causing such a fuss, all I could find was an overgrown drainage ditch splicing through a bleak industrial corridor. Turned out I was in the right place all along. As for the elements of a successful underdog story, I, I, I guess, you know, the old adage is you have to make people care about whoever is going through that. Um, and that's what I try to do. How, how do you make people care about uh, what could be a very boring, wonky story about a super fun cleanup with lots of ins and outs and regulations and paperwork and meetings and how... How have you found success in making people care about um, this story here? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, I think pretty early on we figured out there couldn't really be like one main character here, one main person um, that really we had to make people like care about Butte as a collective and that um, having me as a guide perhaps would work better than having you know one character be the through line and it's not like I go about every day like how do I make people care about this you know I mean I care right like I care about what happens to this community because I live in it but even before I did and you know 
I care about the complicated lives people are living here, whether they work for Atlantic Richfield, the Environmental Protection Agency, or have absolutely nothing to do with Superfund whatsoever. And just, you know, the paradoxes that exist here, um, I think they're more on the surface than they are in a lot of other places I've been to or lived. You know, like, there's just a lot of struggles writ large in Butte, you know, and on personal levels, and people are really open about them. And they don't try to, like, come up with an easy answer necessarily. And that's probably what I like the most about the sound, you know. Mm -hmm. And so you became fascinated. Did you do some reporting here and prior to the podcast? Yes, for several years, we didn't have a Montana Public Radio didn't have a reporter in Butte, has never had a full time reporter in Butte. And there was a lot of stuff happening on Superfund cleanup. And so uh, my boss at the time, Eric Whitney, who's the editor on the podcast still, you know, assigned me to start doing two ways with the newspaper editor here, which is kind of a journalism hack for if you don't have a reporter, like go talk to someone who lives there. And I got really interested through talking to David McCumber, who also really cared about these issues. And then, you know, the more I learned about what was happening, then I I started pitching stories and coming here and seeing stuff for myself. And that was a game changer because hearing about Butte is a totally different thing than being here. And so, you know, that was when some pretty big things happened. Like there was the second snow goose die off. And as interesting as that whole incident was what I really responded to even more was the community's response to it and holding this wake for the snow geese and you know coming out and singing about them and like demanding that something else happen and so yes I I started doing a lot of reporting here and then I went through this process of like well everything I've heard about Butte and Superfund is that it's kind of this done deal and everyone knows how the story ends but actually the cleanup wasn't finished And there was a ton happening. And so for my master's project, I decided to do a radio documentary. And I spent a lot, like several days a week here for months on end, getting to know people. And really the, um, the, the gist of that story was about this Creek channel that we're sitting next to right now and why a portion of the community was so adamant that it needs to be rebuilt. Um, and there's just a lot of like emotional aspects of that story and nostalgic ones and then you know the science and the ecology is like almost in another realm and so when I saw some of that passion coming to the surface like I really didn't understand it Mm. and I think that's what really you know made me think oh there's just a lot going on here yeah and then you followed it um how did the podcast come to be did you did it come out of your your thesis project yeah i never pitched a podcast on superfund and butte just set the record straight (laughs) Uh, it was more like i had already made a lot of inroads here and gotten to know people uh both professionally and personally and yeah there's clear uh, you know it wasn't just about superfund there's a lot of industrial places in montana and around the country that are kind of struggling with this question of like what do we become now and so i think that we recognize that that was a theme that a lot of people could connect to and then uh basically npr had this competition where you could pitch them a big project and if you won you could come to dc and they'd help you workshop it for a week with all their pros and so we pitched something along the lines of this and and won and got there and like having a week to really shape this long form project and think about well what are the things that someone outside of Butte Montana would 
care about potentially. Um, yeah, we went there, we did it and that was key. And then we came back to MTPR and there was this kind of appetite for more podcasts and long form because we'd already started to kind of tread down that road. And I don't even remember what happened, but pretty soon it was like, I've been thinking about moving to Butte anyway. And I probably could have like freelanced a lot of stories, but the radio station was like, well, if you're moving there, like we'll hire you and like, let's get this off the ground now that we have this plan. And I don't ever remember a clear conversation of like, we are making a podcast about Superfund and Butte and it will be this and it will be this. It was more just like, this is a good idea. We got a little bit of funding to get it started. You're like, you're after it. So like, let's do this. And then shortly thereafter, you know, I moved to Copper Street and I brought all my radio gear with me. And then I have been spending a lot of time thinking about this for the past two and a half years. Yeah. Two and a half years. Yeah. Quite, a, quite a time to live in a story. Um, yes. Yes, it is, Rick. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> um, so I'm curious about that, that journey, though. So you you moved here. You You do episode one, which is so great at setting the stage giving a great flavor of butte um and the, the community and spirit here and, with gorgeous and snowy introducing us to it's norris like x for one thing most people from here have an insane amount of hometown pride honestly it's my home plus it's it's the best place i've ever been butte's the last best place no one loves butte more than me that's for sure and if uh, you want to fight about it, step outside, mister. For a long time. And you're kind of going at it an episode at a time. You've got a little bit of funding. But if I remember correctly from, from previous conversations, you didn't have the full scope of the project and like how it was all going to how it was all going to play out. Then you do you, you get episode two, which is full of some of the best writing uh, for radio that that I can recall. Um I'll give you one example because it sticks out so so clearly in my mind. It, you're you're setting the stage for Butte and talking about the Victorian mansions here, many of which are and a empty. Lot are simply and you say not the, there. The wide, the wide streets are like smiles with missing teeth. With missing teeth, which is which is a little bit of poetry in there. Uh, it's got some great rhythm, uh, some great uh, uh, alliteration. It's just it's and it's it's perfectly placed in the episode. It's just mind blowing. Uh, in the writing, I was so I, I remember like audibly saying, "Yeah, Nora," <laughs> when I listened to that the first time. And I think uh, it was episode two after that 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 it really picked up steam. Well, thank you. First of all, it's very kind, and I just want to point out that I have an excellent producer and editor on our team. So uh, you know that that helps with the writing. Um, I mean, we we kind of just embarked on this. We had a general roadmap for it and yeah with the funding it was like let's get this off the ground but then it really quickly became just like mtpr is making this podcast and i didn't have to worry about that anymore but the whole premise of it is like you know butte is on the verge of this big super fun deal which could have a really big impact on its future in lots of ways and that hadn't happened yet and so in terms of storytelling you know we were chasing this thing that hadn't happened that we were committed to following on the ground as it unfolded at the same time trying to unspool the backstory and the history which is so um yeah mythical here in, in some ways legendary i guess and that if people do know about butte 
they probably know about the history. So we knew that that was going to be an important way to, you know, set the hook and, and get people to care about like what happened to this place. But yeah, we, we had a general idea of where we were heading. Uh, I didn't really expect that we'd go so deep into some of the historical pieces around mining, around, you know, labor, um, just what this place was. But it makes sense to me now because you have to understand how like hot high <laughs> Butte was where it was at one point in its lifespan to understand like in some ways how far it's fallen. I don't say that in a mean way, but um, yeah, I mean, it really fell from grace after the mine shut down and Superfund took over. So we, you know, when you're chasing a story that is happening in real time, you both have to like drop what you're doing to report things as they happen um, and continue to try to fill in the backstory. And then I guess now that I've been doing this for a bit of time, I realize I think it's actually much easier to report historical pieces and stories because you know, in some ways, like the world has already done the sorting work for you and decided, you know, either what to really make prominent or like what the stories that are undertold are. But when something is happening right in front of you and you live there, you just, my process has been to just try to take a really like wide angle lens and then make sense of it later. And so, I mean, I'm very glad that the deal is actually going through and it's not just luck I mean I did I've done a lot of reporting and it's not you know it's not just reading the tea leaves like had it not gone through or something happened out of left field we would have reported on that too and what it meant so it's hard to know exactly where your story is going to go when you're yeah chasing something that is like a mirage just in front of you you know First off, before we get up to our ears and the contents of the deal, or consent decree, I want to tell you a little bit more about what it's like, and who it is, to me at least, as an outsider looking in. Appearance-wise, it's rather plain. 1,422 pages total of text, addendums, appendices, and attachments, overflowing with legalese and jargon all stuffed into a three-ring binder so hefty it could moonlight as a child's booster seat. I've read it from cover to cover. Okay, I skimmed a little. And I still find it intimidating, confusing, and yet strangely alluring. If this was a romance novel, it would probably be a tragic tale of unrequited love. I struggle to understand the consent decree, get close to it, and in response to my advances... It's cold, distant, unavailable. This is not the kind of relationship that Josh Bryson, the local liability manager for Atlantic Richfield, has with it. Maybe I'm still kind of in that starry-eyed phase with, with the consent decree, but uh, to me, I, I fundamentally, I know what it says, and I know who it is and what it delivers, so... It's easy for me to like it. On your website, you talk about uh, wondering what it is like to live, wondering what it's like to tell stories that are big enough to live in. That's it. I think that's a fundamentally courageous act to undertake. Um, 
So to, as a journalist, wonder, come, come away with the question of what it's like to tell a story big enough to live in and then to come here, to move your life here, set up shop here for a couple of years, um, not, not be able to get away from it, really. You know, you're, you're immersing, immersing yourself in it. I think it's a fundamentally courageous act. And I'm talking to you at a point in that journey and in that time that understandably has to be difficult, has to be challenging because you're, you're in it and that's hard. And you're in a town where, I don't know, you can confirm or deny this, um, (laughs) or, um, and tell me, I feel like it would be hard with, with this much civic pride to break into just moving here from outside not much less sticking a microphone in, in people's face and telling him you're trying to get to the heart of this story tell me tell me about your life and, yeah. and everything here yeah. um i imagine you face some resistance um how had tell me about how that is on a personal level as a storyteller to live inside a story yeah and i think that phrase i'm trying to remember where it originally came from i think a rabbi wrote it, mm-hmm. a female rabbi, but I can't remember who. And then Terry Tempest Williams, you know, kind of has a twist on it. Like, we're just here to keep the story going, you know. So the, I really love those ideas. Um, I think that's, you know, what you point out about being embedded here in this community that I'm reporting on. When I think about this project and the parts that have gone well, I guess I wonder how I don't think any of it is like replicable because I living in a place that you have a hyper that you have like a magnifying glass to is really uncomfortable and maybe you know for a week or a couple days which is how most people talk about being embedded in their story that's one thing but to like really put your life in it and say like I am embracing this place and everything that comes with it I mean yeah it's really hard at the same time, like, living here was key, you know, and I don't, I cannot imagine doing this and not living here. I'd like to think that gives me more street cred than someone like parachuting in. It's been essential to building relationships with people. I mean, I don't, I would never have the access I do. I'm guessing people, sources would treat me differently as I would have every right to. But I'm a familiar face, at least in the super fun circles. And I I hope that what does come across is that I'm like genuinely curious about people's experiences with this like very tough subject, you know, that I genuinely care about humanity, (laughs) that I want to be fair. And they see me talking to all kinds of people and trying to, yeah, pull at different threads of the story. And I really hope that comes across, you know, that is real for me and um you know I can also like bump into people when I'm walking the dog or you know uh doing my radio show or something so living in this story has been hard it's not something that I think I could do for that much longer it's also seemingly been fundamental to this and also it's like the only way I know how to do it like I want to show up for everything in my life you know family partners you know, friends, my dog, and like, I want to really show up for my job and the reporting. And I I don't know how to do that. Um, 
and keep a bigger distance but I also it, it makes me think a lot about like okay when this project's wrapped up maybe I need to have some different boundaries at least for a while I don't know uh I, yeah and it's like yeah I'm living this story but like so are 30,000 other people and generations so it doesn't really feel like you know that much of a burden <laughs> to carry and here yeah I mean I get to witness and sometimes be a part of you know joy and relief that comes with some of these milestones being accomplished I get to like ask you know commissioners on our local government what it feels like to be wrestling with this decision that they think is going to impact generations to come in their town you know um I get to be with people when there's a major disappointment or they're unsatisfied yeah it's um it's like the whole range of human emotions I don't really get to just pick and choose it's just like a practice right like even when I am tired of this thing <laughs> and, and I wake up feeling like I don't care like I still have to do it and and I still have to like find a reason to care and um I think it's it as much as it's hard not to have these like thick dark lines of boundaries around you know your reporting or your community which is another aspect of this I, I've learned so much from it and it's just like sh yeah showing up every day and continuing relationships with people in the community who are a key part of how this is all unfolding and I think you have to like know yourself pretty well to be able to do this um, and be able to put up with a lot of highs and lows but that kind of comes with reporting anywhere I don't know it's it's also hard because you just have to like keep paying attention to the same thing and in this case the thing is like this very complex dense yeah uh, bureaucratic program um so if you have a shorter attention span like maybe it's not the best choice but yeah there's nothing like you know getting to spend a lot of time in the in the story you're telling i'm a creature of habit most nights i brush my teeth read my book turn off the light, and climb into bed. Then I close my eyes and wait for the soothing sounds of the Phoenix Whaler to lull me to sleep. I live in Butte, Montana, a beautiful old copper mining city that's on the National Register of Historic Places. It's full of stately Victorian-era brick buildings and ornate mansions right next to ramshackle cottages. And it's in the most dramatic setting possible, the city itself is built right on the side of a steep hill in the northern Rocky Mountains and overlooks a mile-high valley ringed with gorgeous snowy peaks. Butte's like nowhere else. Last summer when I told friends and family that I was leaving Missoula and moving to Butte, I got a lot of strong reactions. This is my mom. Butte, I think that feels like the end of the world. And I don't know what kind of effects it might have on your health. I don't think it's a good idea for you to be there. That's because outside of Montana, Butte's not the place you go to have a crazy weekend that you go home and brag to your friends about. A lot of people look at Butte and see America's most toxic mess. Yeah, I mean, how do you think about an under underdog, Rick? <laughs> does my like working definition work for you? I think it does. I mean, I, I like it. Um, and I like it because it's not your traditional, uh, 
Hollywood underdog story of overcoming an obstacle shortened into one, you know, one hero's journey, the traditional like arc. Right. Your yours is more of a series of like ups and downs, which is I think more true to life uh, and true to most people's experience. And a lot of and you know in the traditional arc, it's all up until the end, which is the happily ever after, right? <laughs> yeah, or, some, yeah. or something. Yeah, I think but so. But in this, you're you're really getting in with the troughs as well. Yeah. There's a lot of there. There are downs. There are valleys and gullies, like this thing we're looking at here. <laughs> you know, that yeah. get that get neglected and abandoned, and it can go on for a long time. Um, with with little small peaks of victories yeah I don't know I mean I I guess hearing you talk about that it just makes me think like probably most of us from a you know individual human level to a town or community or collective like we have to pin our hopes on something in order to keep going right and then maybe once you kind of get above that then you can look a little bit harder on that thing that you pinned your hopes on and see what it actually um brings when I say that I'm thinking about Superfund and the cleanup right like it seems totally natural to me to be striving for this thing to want it to happen to feel like it's long overdue and to have a lot of high hopes about it and it also seems really natural after the fact to be like you know is this all it's cracked up to be like what problems is this really going to help us solve and you just keep that cycle going of like going for something and reflecting on it going for slowing and reflecting on it like having someone knock you down and getting back up like I don't I, I don't know I don't know if that's good storytelling but it's certainly what's happened to me and I think what's happened <laughs> to a lot of people here so yeah and <laughs> yeah and you're you're in it I mean you're, you're describing the super fun site but you're also describing your journey um as a as a storyteller in this place and as an embedded journalist who's really trying to live a really difficult story and live in a live in a place uh that that's just gonna they i don't know you're immersed in in a way that most people get to have those those nice boundaries go back go back home rest relax think about the story and then come back for more if they need it yeah is that how you, you don't work? you're just here yeah i love immersion but it it i think it necessitates heartbreak to be well to be done honestly yeah um if you're if you're gonna get to the heart of the story you got to be committed to getting in there and there's gonna be tears yeah oh there have been tears have there been tears Nora? <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> <laughs> what am i a robot yeah of course <laughs> of course there no i just i just feel i think it's dangerous to keep mythologizing butte and i don't uh-huh. want to contribute to that sure you know and so i think our goal with this has been to show a lot of sides of people here and life here and, and the story here and not, you know, maybe highlight one too high above the next. And when you're saying that, like, it's been hard, like, yeah, it's been hard. But I, I mean, sure, there are like thousands of other stories out there that are like truly heartbreaking, you know. And yeah, I I don't know. I... I guess I just feel strange about that framing, to be honest with you. And also, you know, I forget if we talked about this before, but something that comes up a lot for me around this is just people will say here, like, you know, Butte's been exploited by various interests um, and, you know, people have mined it for all sorts of things and also for stories. And I am like really not wanting to be one of those people who just comes and 
capitalizes on a place for its mythology and its characters and then like washes their hands of it and walks away and I don't think I'm doing that but I always have to like check in on that I mean the whole setup is that it's someone else picking and choosing the narrative and picking and choosing who gets to say what and why and there's so much power in that and I'm like very aware of that on a daily basis here and I try to you know be thoughtful and careful uh but that's just inherent in this project I mean and by that I mean like storytelling or journalism writ large you know and um I guess I still don't know what to do with that truthfully unless you're writing your own memoir in which case you still have a lot of power over other people's stories I'm never going to get away from that and I don't know that I'll ever make peace with it but I, I guess I'm just committed to like continuing to wrestle with it yeah that, I think that's the best you yeah know, as long as you are committed to keeping it at the forefront of your mind at all times I think it comes through right hopefully should we walk yeah it's hot Let's yeah it's hot. hot you're getting you're probably getting sunburned. thanks for asking me all those questions Rick oh man North thank you that was yeah. great uh, I hope it I, I know cathartic a, in a way yeah I, I could sense that I mean it, it, it sounded like you're you're in it and and you're yeah. talking about it, and yeah, you're you still have that energy. It's not like a reflective energy. It's like <laughs> I'm still fighting this thing, and I gotta I gotta yeah. do it. I got I got a deadline tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yes, I do. Why uh, yeah. are you making me <laughs> take an hour and a half of my Sunday to talk about this shit? This is work, bud. <laughs> this is supposed to be my day off. <laughs> to Nora Sachs for being such an insightful and plucky podcast host and podcast guest. Thanks to Montana Public Radio and Richest Hill for the generous use of audio clips, to Nate Hedgie and Wartime Blues for our theme music, and to the Montana Arts Council and the Prop Foundation for their support of the Free Flow podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast or if you want to check out Richest Hill, subscribe to both online at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To get in touch with Nora, visit her website at norasax.com. And for information on Free Flow Institute programming or for links to the things we talked about today, check out the show notes at freeflowinstitute.com slash podcast. <laughs>